Okay. As is our custom, um, we will consider anything from this morning's sermon and broaden out to anything on your minds, and then we can eventually go look at the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. That's the order of things this morning. So, anything from Luke 4? Any questions? Yes, Lee. Yes. Um, we've got, yeah, Isaiah's a pretty sizable scroll. Probably, we're probably dealing with something from the ones we've dug up that's probably this tall, um, maybe this big around. I mean, we can look some of those up. But yeah, they would have had the scroll of the Isaiah scroll, um, First and Second Samuel are one scroll. They, 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 their, their Bible wouldn't be a book. They'd have... Well, I think that's part of I think that's part of it is the one insight we got into young Jesus is young Jesus three days and three nights was in the temple studying the Bible with the best teachers in Israel. It's not surprising that adult full grown Jesus can just open up to the section he wants in Isaiah. Although I dare to guess that any rabbi or anybody I mean, these people I mean the, the Pharisees had memorized the entire Old Testament and an additional body of rabbinic literature about twice as big. I mean these people school us for their knowledge and familiarity with Scripture. Um, absolutely school us on that sense. I mean, we're excited because we memorized a verse. <laughs> um, so, so, so Jesus is demonstrating prowess with Scripture, but honestly, I don't know if that in and of itself is even remarkable given the standard of his day of knowledge. Um, but certainly we're seeing a mastery of the text. You sort of unroll it, open it up. Yeah, no chapters, no divisions, nothing like that. Just, you know, finds it, gets where he wants to go. Um, he probably doesn't mispronounce it. Well, not probably. Um, someone, someone helpfully told me that I was talking about um, peaching and was it, instead of preaching, it was peaching. I said apparently this this morning peaching. I, I'm sure I did. I have no doubt about that. But um, <laughs> yes, Elsa. We, we don't, the text of the Bible doesn't tell it. We, like I said, that, that one verse in Acts is the closest insight we get to the program. Um, so everything else would be from extra biblical sources. So the, the bottom line is we don't know terribly well whether they had a reading program or whether the person reading got to pick or what. Um, we know from Acts 13 that it confirms what we know extra biblically. There's, an, there's a Moses reading, a law, a Torah, a Torah reading, and then one of the prophets, whether the former. See, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, is broken up into uh, the former prophets, the latter prophets, um, and, the, and, and they, they break it up into different chunks than we do. And so there would have been a reading from Moses and a reading from the prophets, um, either former or latter. So we, we don't know a whole lot more than that, apart, except from extra-biblical sources, and even that's... Our earliest stuff's coming in a hundred years later. We we have a fair idea of what the customs of Judaism in the second century was, but we don't even we don't even know how accurate that is. But it fits with the pictures we get from from like Acts thirteen and stuff. But but the pattern of a law, prophets, homily, or address or sermon is established in Acts, and that's the pattern we see here in Luke four. Yes, JP. Um, the thought is read in Hebrew, translated in Aramaic. Now, that's not necessarily the case, though, because Jesus and the apostles are just as comfortable quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation. But it's thought that likely what would happen, again, we're, we're filling in blanks here, we're going beyond what the text says, but it's entirely possible is that you're reading from the Hebrew, then translating it into the vernacular of the people, and then speaking. Now, it's possible Jesus read Hebrew and everyone spoke Hebrew. It's possible Jesus read a Greek, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which gets quoted about, about it's like 50-50 in the, in the New Testament. So Jesus and the apostles are just as comfortable quoting the Greek translation and calling it the Word of God as they are the Hebrew. By the way, that's the, the basis for why we believe, I mean, you probably, these are questions you probably never ask yourself, but the Muslims, strict Muslims, don't think the Quran can be translated into any other language. If you want to read, if you want to read the Quran, you need to learn um, Aramaic. So, what's the basis with which we we think it's okay for us to translate the Bible? Well, right there, we've got Jesus and the apostles quoting a translation, and and not treating it with any distinction of of, of lesser authority. 
So what we get is when, to the degree that the LXX accurately translates to Hebrew, it's still the Word of God and not diminished the Word of God, which tells us to the degree that our English, Spanish um, translations accurately translate what was written, it's the Word of God. But we get that, we get the authorization for doing that from the pattern of Jesus and the apostles, which strict Islam does not grant. So um, we assume it, which is why I'm, you know, the question of on what authority do we translate the Bible? What do you mean? Well, for a Muslim, that's not an assumed question. Um, anyway, yeah. Anything else from this morning or from Luke in general? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, him reading that is him fulfilling that. that. That's the thing that was just crazy to my mind when that clicked. It was like, wow, that is an audacious claim. He's not saying in general I'm doing this stuff. Because that in your hearing, you hearing this is me fulfilling this. No, I got you. No, and that was, that was my attempt to make the third point, that Jesus, no one prior to Jesus could make that announcement. The Messiah only could be the one who has to show up and say that. But then the Messiah commissions his disciples and his followers in his name to present his message as well. So that was kind of my third point is, okay, as one of Jesus' underlings, much, much under, 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 underlings, um, me speaking this message, the opportunity now is that Jesus, even right here and right now, might set captives free. I mean, let's let's say someone this morning is listening to the message and, and the Holy Spirit convicts their heart and they their eyes are opened and they come to faith. Has not that passage just been fulfilled in our hearing? Right? So so yeah, Jesus is still doing it's, it's a sort of perennial today, that sort of biblical notion of today, while you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So Jesus inaugurates this. No one before Jesus could fulfill this, because only Jesus is the Messiah speaking. And the Messiah has to do these things. But then the Messiah entrusts, according to the language of 2 Corinthians 5, to us the ministry and the word of reconciliation. And so we proclaim the same message as in proxy for him, as he himself is. I mean, he's his, we are his body. That's, this is part of the biblical imagery of we're his body. In some sense, we represent him. So we speak his message. Jesus is not physically on earth doing this ministry. His body is. Which, of which he is the head. And so, no, that, that was kind of that third, if that wasn't clear, that was the third point is that also means even right here and right now, this morning, this, this can be fulfilled. Likewise, this morning, people can sit and say, well, you know, it's interesting. He's an interesting teacher. This is interesting stuff. We will hear more. And that was what I was saying. Be careful. That'll resolve itself one way or another really quickly. People don't remain ambivalent about Jesus for long, um, at least not in my experience. But, yeah, no, that's... Yeah. Good point. Any? Yes? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think we, with the insight, okay, we understand that all of the blessings God intends to do through Jesus comes in waves. The first advent, the second advent, and in between. I don't know, it, it doesn't seem that they had figured that out, and honestly, without knowing that, going back and just reading, like you read through Zechariah, and here's what you get. Messiah will come and make everything right. Messiah will come, and he will defeat Israel's his enemies. He will bring in an everlasting kingdom. He will establish righteousness. He will cleanse his people. Now, that's all true. You read Zechariah, and you get the impression that all kind of happens at the same time. And Messiah shows up, and he cleanses his people, and then it's been 2,000 years, and <laughs> Messiah will return. So I don't know if we see the significance of where he stops and what, what he mines out of it. And even the added, the ad, I mean, he grabs from two chapters before and adds in the setting captives free, which is where I'm saying I don't think that's accidental because the Isaiah passage is all about what he's going to proclaim, what he's going to proclaim, and then and set captives free, which he grabs from three, three chapters earlier, that one phrase from uh, 58, 58? Let me get my notes. Hold on. From... 58.6, yeah. Um, so we see that. And it's, it's, in other words, I guess my answer would be, it's possible that they might have, huh, what's up with that? I don't think they would have pieced it together. Um, we, looking at it, can go, oh, wow. He's grabbing some of that, and he's not grabbing all of it. He's not claiming to be fulfilling. Yeah, I mean, he certainly didn't. In, in that moment, he wasn't rebuilding the cities and the walls of Jerusalem. 
you know, the, the, that wasn't taking, he doesn't quote that bit. Um, he understands which part of Isaiah 61 he is fulfilling, and he's very, we observe, he's very specific about what he quotes and what he leaves out. He even leaves out the judgment, right? Because his initial mission, what he's doing right now, is not a mission of judgment. I've come into the world not to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, he's coming back for judgment, that's for sure. You know, So it's, he's very particular about what he grabs. I don't know how much they would have got. I think we can observe what he what aspects he quotes and what he leaves out and what he grabs from another chapter. He's very intentional about what he's quoting and what he's claiming to fulfill. So, no, that's good. good. Is that answer or is that just a long-winded sort of ramble? Yes. All right. See, now you're learning. It's both. Exactly. Yes. All right. Any, anything else? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's a couple things. Um, Easter Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Um, I, I prefer the title Resurrection Sunday just because I'm not sure what the resurrection has to do with Ishtar. Um, but it's it's what everyone calls it, so don't worry about it. I mean, it's just I I tried Resurrection Sunday is just way more clunky, and it, Easter just rolls off the tongue. But I, I, every year I keep no, I'm going to call it Resurrection Sunday, and I keep calling it Easter. So anyway, sorry, that's just me rabbit trailing. Um, obviously, if we're trying to celebrate the actual day, it should be lining up as close as possible with the Day of Atonement and uh, Yom Kippur. It doesn't. Um, that's likely because, and Zeb, if you want to verify this, I. I um, I'm sure a quick check to Wikipedia can answer. Um, when Constantine in the 4th century made Christianity the official empire of the Roman Empire, um, and, and what we've got is sort of the earliest form of Roman Catholicism. I mean, Catholic with a lowercase c just means universal. I mean, and through the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, it starts to get on a more um, um, centralized def- definition. Um, there was an attempt made, and this is what Jesus can verify, uh, because you're taking p- pagan peoples who worship also. I mean, Rome had a policy of letting you worship whatever you wanted to worship as long as you'd also tip your hat to Caesar and send the money upwards, which is why the Jews could worship Yahweh um, and, and, and be, un, be unperturbed in that sense. Rome said, fine, worship your, worship your God, that's fine. Just do homage to Caesar and send the money. Um, so that changes when, when the official religion of, of, of the land is Christianity. Well, people are used to all these holidays, these holy, I mean, holidays just comes from holy day, these holy days. And so there was an attempt made, I believe, to, um, coincide Christian holidays with the already observed pagan holidays. Um, so that's where we get, like, Christmas lines up pretty nicely with, uh, Saturnalia, um, and I'm pretty sure the dating or the time, that's where you get to the moon, because all of the pagan rituals were based on, on lunar cycles. Now, that doesn't mean, this is the genetic fallacy, that doesn't mean then that Easter or Christmas, we talked about this a week or two ago, is, is bad, we shouldn't. That's its roots, that's where it comes from. But if you really want to push it, then we shouldn't call the days of the week by their names, because they're all named after pagan gods too. Um, and I'm not certainly not doing homage to Odin when I talk about Wednesday. But that's the origin of Wednesday, Odd Wednesday. Um, am I right? Let the record say that I am right. Um, why did they pick? Why did they pick the date for Easter? What's the date for Easter based off of the observance of Easter? Is it does? Yeah, uh, Zeb's looking it up. Then sorry. Right, right, right. Um, the yeah, part of that happened in the 5th century with a split between the Western and Eastern Orthodox Church, um, which was primarily about whether or not um, the the uh, Eastern Church didn't recognize the Pope as the Supreme Pontiff, whereas the Western Church did. And part of that then came out of church authority. Um, and so I think one of the ways you show your own, you do your own things, you set your own dates. I think that's probably part of the reason for the split is, you know, um, what's the point of splitting and then doing everything they do? You gotta do a little differently, you know. Yes, Elsa. You'd have to ask. You'd have to. You'd have to ask a Catholic apologist, not me. This Pope certainly is certainly doing a lot to try to. To, to he seems to be doing a lot to try to smooth things over. So you know, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't keep up on it that much. Um, Al Mohler mentioned it on the briefing. That was about the extent of my 
It's better for me to speak about things, not to speak of things I don't know. Oh, Islam. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, apparently the meeting was about um, a response to how Islam is wiping out and killing Christians of all creeds in various countries and them trying to get their heads together in, in response to that. They have a common threat or a common problem. And I think the meeting was about that, not about, not about drawing together doctrinally closer, but simply, hey, can we, can we plan and strategize how to stop our people from getting beheaded? Yeah, that's, I, that's how I understand the purpose of the meeting. Um, what? Again, I, I don't, I wasn't, I wasn't, this, this, may, this may shock you. I wasn't at the meeting, Elsa, and I haven't read the cliff notes yet. I don't know. I don't know. But there's this thing called the internet. There's this thing called the internet. And you get on, you type stuff in, and I'm sure you could figure out what they did talk about. I don't, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm being, I'm being facetious. I just don't know. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. It is the Sunday following the full moon, which falls on or after the equinox, will give the law for Easter. Okay, yes, tied with the equinox, yeah. There you go, yeah, yeah, there you go. So... So, no, ex- excellent. Thank you, Dan. Um, any other, okay, any other questions? We've talked about East, this is good. Eddie, just, we're, out, we're now we're out in the broad open question time. Um, we're, no, we're good. This is good stuff. Um, anything, anything. <laughs> All Hallows' Eve? All, it's the day before All Saints' Day. Okay. Oh, Jim? I can dance all day, Jim. I can dance all day. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Going once. Going twice. Let's talk about speaking in tongues. All right. See what I just did there? We're going to talk about speaking. All right. Hey. Okay. If you'd open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 12. I don't have a handout because going through this is more of a sort of a free-form discussion. Um, and let me say up front what my goal is, what we're, what we've, what we're doing is and where we've gone and we've come from. We've, we've talked about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, his ministry in the Old Covenant, his ministry in the New Covenant of indwelling believers and opening our eyes to understand the Word of God and, and convicting hearts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, of, of leading us in truth. And then we establish that the Holy Spirit gives gifts um, when he when he comes upon people. We, let's let's just cover that in First Corinthians twelve. Um, just trying to where we've come from, and then what we're going to do. And um, twelve seven. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there we get both everybody individually, specifically. And the purpose, common good. I want you to emphasize that common good purpose. There are no gifts the Spirit gives for your own good only. They're given for the common good. It's huge. Um, And then verse 11. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Next point. The Holy Spirit alone is the one who decides what gifts, what gift you get. And we talked about how all the, the lists that Paul gives um, have a lot of overlap, but they're distinct. We don't get the impression that Paul has given an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Um, so that's that's the first thing. What we're going to do is look at one or two of the um, of the what are called. Okay, let me back up a step. Amongst the gifts given, given wow, listed gifts amongst the listed. Oh wow! Okay, sorry. Amongst the lists of gifts, um, you you, you yeah. I deserve I deserve that one. I deserve that one. Okay. Um, amongst the lists of gifts, um, people distinguish between those that evidence a supernatural nature, miracle working. Those would be things. What we call 
the, the text doesn't divide them this way, but as we read them, a, a useful um, handhold is the miraculous gifts and the non-miraculous gifts. Now, in one sense, any gift from the Holy Spirit is miraculous. It's supernaturally uh, bestowed by an immaterial spirit who is God. I mean, that's, that's miraculous, right? Um, but... Um, some of them quite clearly involve more immediate miraculous ability on the part of the recipient than others. So go to the end of 12 for one of Paul's partial lists. Uh, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, then teachers, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various types of tongues are all a prophet. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now amongst that list, most of those we would view as, as supernatural miraculous, but some of them aren't. Gifts of administration. So you might be supernaturally empowered with administration, but nobody watching you do that is going to implicitly say, how on earth? This is miraculous. Now, maybe somebody who knows, like if you knew me and all of a sudden I'm doing really well with administration, you would think that was a miracle from God. But, but, um, and Renee is not here to say amen, but believe me, she's saying amen in her car, whatever. Um, <laughs> my wife's amening that statement. Um, but there's nothing from the outside observer fundamentally supernatural going on. Um, gifts he lists here of helping, helps. Other places, gifts of compassion and hospitality, things like that. But then we get things that clearly, as they're exercised, un undeniably evidence a supernatural character, such as gifts of healing, um, various kinds of languages, um, miracles, mir miracles, the broad category of miracles. The whole point of miracles is they're miraculous. So people discuss and break the gifts, when you look at the various lists, down into the miraculous gifts and the non-miraculous gifts, recognizing that in one sense they're all miraculous. Um, is that, okay, just you with me so far? Then the debate happens, and we've got to back up a hair. There's um, a debate within the church over whether or not all of the gifts, the miraculous and non-miraculous, continue in the normal life of the church, or, that's one group, they continue, we'll call them continuous, um, or whether some of the gifts ceased, cessationist, you get the word cessation to cease. So within the church of Jesus Christ, in the church, um, amongst believers who will be bumping elbows in heaven, there are those who believe all the gifts mentioned, all of them continue uninterrupted without any significant change, and they're continuous. Sometimes they go by the terms charismatic. Um, continuationist, thank you. Um, and there are those who believe the miraculous gifts ceased. They would be cessationists, okay? Um, and that, that, is this a new discussion for people? Are you basically aware of these two positions? Um, you've ever been to a Pentecostal or charismatic church, you are dealing with continuationists. Okay? Um, Most people were charismatic. Charismatic. I'm just trying to make, what I'm trying to center in on is the difference of belief. Charismatic doesn't tell you what we believe that's different, whereas continuationists, we are saying we believe all these gifts are continuing without any significant change. The cessationists would argue or believe that somewhere in the late first century, early second century, the miraculous aspect of the gifts dies out. And, 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 and there's subcategories amongst both groups, okay? You with me so far? Everyone with me? Okay. So what's difficult is this. John MacArthur just had a conference. How long ago, Elsa? Two, three years ago? 2013, on this very issue. And we actually have folks who have come out of a charismatic background due in large part to the teaching of that conference. You had a lot of teachers, right? Um, yeah. And Elsa would be one of them. You, you, before you came here, what, you were part of a Pentecostal church? First Assembly, yeah. Okay. So our church historically um, has, has not held the continuationist position. Um, but what I want to do, what's, what's difficult is that the, the issue of cessation, ceasing of gifts, is one that has to be of necessity extra-biblical. Let me explain what I mean. Obviously, at the time the scripture is being written, these things were taking place. Yes? You with me? 
Roger? Okay. So if you want to argue that sometime in the late first century, early second century, the, the miraculous gifts died, we're past the writing of Scripture. So it's possible Scripture predicts it'll happen, but for us to know with certainty it has is a deduction we have to make looking at historic evidence. In other words, I don't think you can prove from the Bible that those things have happened because there's a certain amount of looking at history that has to take place. The Bible may well predict those things will happen. That The Bible may well predict that certain gifts will stop. But the conclusion those gifts have stopped is an extra biblical conclusion. You with me? Okay. Looking at the evidence, and, and okay, so let me tell you, I, I land in what's technically a third category, um, open but very, very cautious, meaning I tend to function and act like a cessationist. I have never in my life seen um, undeniably miraculous gifts like Paul describes, but just because I haven't seen them don't mean they're not there. Um, so, so... I also don't believe, in my experience, that, that those gifts are normative for the church. It seems like when Paul was writing, every church had a smattering of, of miracle workers, of, of people with gifts of healing, that does not appear, as a deduction I make, does not appear to be normal nowadays. Now, saying that doesn't mean God doesn't heal or that God can't do these things, but it certainly appears in the New Testament, especially as you read Corinthians that this is normal for the first century church, and that clearly seems to have changed. And just about everybody recognizes that much, that something's changed. This isn't normal anymore. So the, the, big, the only difference between me and, say, where John MacArthur's coming from is if somebody were to show up at his church and say, you know, I have, I have the gift of healing, or I have the gift of speaking in tongues, or I have the gift of prophecy, um, John MacArthur and his elders would politely say, uh, no, you don't. Those, those things have ceased. They're convinced those things are over. If somebody came and said that to me, whereas I would be very, 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 very cautious, and hmm, I'd, I'd want to evaluate it to Scripture. I'm just convinced in all my instances where I've done that, that what I've seen, and again, I, I haven't seen everything, I've just, but I have some very dear friends who are charismatic back in New Hampshire, uh, love them dearly, and nothing I've ever seen looks remotely like what I'd expect it to look like from Scripture. So what we're going to do in our study is we're simply going to, like, like the people who study the true dollar bill can identify counterfeits, we're going to say, what ought the gift of languages look like? And then I'll leave it to you guys to decide whether or not what's being purported as the gift of languages looks like that. So rather than bashing people, we're just going to study, and we'll pick one or two case studies. I think we'll deal with prophecy and tongues and uh, maybe, maybe healing and take a week or two on those and just what ought it to look like. And I, and I think that right there should be sufficient. Um, any, any questions so far on this whole issue? I, I know this can be, um, this is something people can get in fights over, that the church can split over, um, and I'm just trying to, like, rather than pick on or, or make fun of or light up any particular group, let's just do a biblical study on what ought we expect the gift of languages to look like. Because tongues is an archaic word that means language. Well, no, the very, no, I'm, I'm spilling my hand. Yeah. When the word, the Greek word glossolalia um, is a common, everyday, non-specialized term. It means either your tongue or a language. When the King James was translated, the word tongue meant tongue or language, as in your mother tongue. So it was a perfectly great word to translate the text when the King James was translated. The problem is nowadays tongues has a sort of spooky, supernatural weird vibe about it that is nowhere present in the Greek or in the English when it was originally translated. So the very first thing I want to do when I talk to people about the gift of languages is, can we talk about the gift of languages? I, I, it removes all the spookiness about it. It's, it's, it's plainly what the word means. It's plainly what the King James translators tried to translate it as, and I just don't think it's helpful to cover it in the murky sort of, because there's nothing about that in, in either the Greek or the original English translation. So that's the first thing. Can we just, we're talking about the gift of languages. Because what I think you'll see is as we look at it, it'll be pretty plain what it should look like, and then you can figure out whether or not it's, that's what's taking place. Everyone with me so far? Because we've got time now. We're actually going to make some progress here. Where's Alyssa? And, and she's always giving me a hard time about not getting any of this stuff done. Okay. So here's my short answer of what I think. Well, answer. No one's asking the question. Here's my short definition of what I think the gift of languages is. I believe the gift of languages to be a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit whereby men and women speak in unknown languages to themselves, languages they have not studied, languages they have not learned, spontaneously speaking 
Um, in general, it seems like praise to God, extolling God's goodness, um, and in, in, in languages they have not studied, and in languages they themselves, while speaking, do not understand. Okay? That, we're getting there. I'm not saying what it is. Then we can ask what it's for. I'm just asking what is it. What is it? And I'll establish this. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to go to Acts 2. Um, we're going to go to Acts 2. The gift of languages is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit whereby men and women or whoever possesses the gift spontaneously, without training, without exercise, without work, speak in languages not known to them, so much so that unless somebody interprets, they themselves do not even know what they're saying. Okay? Um, Acts 2 is the first occurrence of this phenomena. Um, the coming of the Holy Spirit um, and um, let's pick it up in just over verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. I'm just going to put languages in, because that's what it means, um, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Next point, every instance we have of the gift of languages is being spoken in known earthly languages. And yes, I know we'll have to look into what about tongues of men and the angel, we'll get there. I'm just saying here, they're speaking known human languages. Here, that's what they're doing. Um, so they are, they are speaking languages that at least someone present is understanding. Um, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontia, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And others mocked and said, They are full of new wine, which is to say they're drunk. Um, so, you with me so far? So at least in the very first instance of the gift of languages, people are speaking known earthly languages, they're speaking in languages they haven't been taught, they haven't studied, and they're speaking in, a, in, in tons of... The concept seems to be each one of them speaking in some different language of the people present. Yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yes. Some people have argued that the miracle is not that the men were speaking miraculous languages they didn't learn, but rather that the miracle is people hearing it in their own language. That works if you don't actually look at what the text says tightly. But if you look at what it says tightly, that doesn't work. Let me. Fair enough. I've encountered that as well. Um, so, let's just read this slowly again. They are filled, verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. So they are speaking other languages. Um, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the text says they're speaking other languages. Now they were in Jerusalem and um, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at their sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them... And again, there's a certain amount of hyperbole used here. When it says every nation under heaven, I don't think they were representatives of the American Indians. Present. Fair enough? There's a sense... People from all over. I mean, we, we recognize literary devices. Um, there, weren't, there weren't representatives from nations that hadn't yet been made or nations that had died out. And so we get told in more specificity what every nation means, and they list the nations. And if you go with the nations listed, I don't think there'd be too few people in the upper room for that to be covered. Um, but then again, the text makes it clear, I think they're the ones speaking. Um, they were amazed and astonished, verse 7, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians means Elamites. Um, we hear them, verse 11, telling in our own language. So we hear them telling in our language. They are telling in their language the mighty works of God. 
and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then Peter gives the interpretation. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only about the third hour. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, declares God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and even your male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show them wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire, smoke and vapor. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. In there... What's referenced is people speaking, not people hearing. So if he's citing Joel, your men shall so speak. Everything about this is the people speaking. So yes, they say, oh, they're confused because it'd be like, it'd be like showing up into, I don't know, in the middle of, uh, middle of um, some foreign country. You're in the middle of India, and all of a sudden you hear someone speaking crystal clear English. Why? Wow, I'm, this, these, these are native Indians, but... I hear them, they're speaking my own language. I mean, that's all I think is going on. I'm, I'm aware that that's raised by some. Um, but I think the text is clear. These men are speaking in their own language, and the Spirit gave them to speak. The miracle, looking back at verse 4, is they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit is empowering their utterance. That's where the miracle is. That's where the supernatural gifting is, is the Spirit giving them things to say. So it would be strange to me, after that emphasis, that really the miracle is the Spirit giving this audience the ability to understand and hear things that aren't really being said. Okay? But no, I have, I have encountered that. Um, I have encountered people argue that. Any questions on that? So it's, I think what clearly is going on here is a bunch of guys are speaking languages they do not have not studied they, they, they supernaturally possess the ability to speak this, and they're, they're giving praise to God. I want to I pause and make one observation. I have heard people argue, this gets to purpose. Well, the purpose of the gift of languages might well be that you could communicate the gospel to someone in a language they don't know. That is not what is taking place here at all. Um, the gift of languages, and we'll get to 14 to look at the purpose in a minute, is the attention grabber, Right? That's what causes the big crowd to gather around. Like, Whoa, what's going on? But if you keep reading Acts 2, it is one man, Peter, speaking in one language, Greek, through which 3,000 men hear the word of Christ and repent and believe. It is not through all these people speaking another language. In other words, you're dealing with bilingual people. Greek was the lingua franca of the day. It was the language of commerce and money. And so these people are... are wealthy enough to travel, to come to Jerusalem from all the parts of the world. They know Greek. So Peter gets up and he speaks in Greek. One language, one man, 3,000 come to faith. The gift of languages is not enabling these people to preach the gospel. That's not even what it says. They're giving God glory. They're glorifying God. It's an attention getter. It's a big flashing neon sign. It's a stop what you're doing. Something important is taking place. That's what it is. It sets the stage for Peter to get up and in Greek speak one man, one message, and that's how the gospel goes out. So it's, is it possible God might gift the gift of languages to someone to speak to someone in a language they don't know the gospel? It's possible. We don't have any examples of it. We have zero examples of it. So that's an important observation to make because I think a lot of people miss that. As, as, as a guy as much as I respect as John Piper missed that. I was listening to him preach through Acts and... Look how God gave the gift of languages to the gospel who go out. Well, indirectly, but the gift of languages was the neon sign that, that created the crowd that enabled one man in Greek to speak. Questions on that? Okay. Now, 1 Corinthians 14. Um, all right. Okay, we've got 15, oh, 13 minutes. See how far we can get. Now, it has been suggested by some that as much as every example we have of people actually speaking other languages, the other languages are human, what if the gift of languages isn't limited by human languages but also could include, say, angelic languages? 
The basis for such a supposition is found in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says in 13.1, If I speak in the tongues or the languages of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And admittedly, he's in chapter 14. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is all about comparing and contrasting the gift of prophecy and the gift of languages. So hasn't Paul just put on the table here the potential of the languages spreading out to also include angelic languages? Here's the reason why. If we conclude that the gift of languages is limited to known earthly languages, the gift of languages becomes very, very easy to verify or falsify. Right? I mean, it'd be really simple. If somebody showed up and said, I have the gift of languages, um, well, what language have you miraculously learned? Farsi or whatever. Okay, great. We'll go find somebody who speaks that and we can verify that you do indeed have this gift. Um, and, And so... It, it, I'm trying to, I'm going to be, I want to be precise and patient here. Um, it is a little suspicious to me that nearly everybody I know who claims to have the gift of languages is, even if we extend it to also include angelic languages, everybody I know is in that camp. They're, they're speaking angelic languages. It, it is a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, hold, no, hold, hold on, calm down. I'm just saying, and all I'm saying, that, that's a little suspicious to me when everybody is in the unverifiable part of the spectrum. Because it, let's acknowledge this. If somebody showed up here where Zach, who I know doesn't know, you know, um, Coptic, um, all of a sudden started busting out in Coptic, um, we would recognize something miraculous was taking place. Um, so it is a little, but I don't think even the extending it to angels is even a valid inference. Here's why. If you just read 1 Corinthians 13.1, you go, oh, okay, he's talking about it. Keep reading, and it is clear he is speaking in hyperbole. Um, in other words, you guys know how hyperbole works. You, you go so much beyond what you mean, you're making your point. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, now nobody I know makes that claim. I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries. This is hyperbole. This is, this is supposed to be above and beyond what anyone is claiming, what anyone is doing. So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So nothing in that makes me think necessarily he's really putting angelic languages on the table because it's hyperbole. It's possible he's putting angelic languages on the table. It's by no means certain because it's... I don't think he's putting on the table that there are people who legitimately might understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. Right? You with me? So it's possible angelic languages are included, but I by no means think it's certain. Now, let's dive into 14. Okay? Here we go. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For when you, And I'm, throughout this, I'm going to translate tongue as language or languages. Okay? Just... Just going to do it. For one who speaks in a language speaks not to men but to God. For one, no one understands him, but he utters, utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement, and the one who prophesies speaks to people, no, and the consolation. The one who speaks in a language builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in languages, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in a language unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, this is where you've got to keep, bear in mind a couple of things because this is the, that paragraph. Okay, let me, let me back up a step. Not only do I disagree with most, with most of my charismatic friends who think, oh no, we all have, all the languages gifts we have are angelic languages. It's possible Paul put them on the table. It certainly appears in the text that every instance we see is no earthly languages. To me, it's very, very suspicious when there's no examples of that. Because again, this would be very easy to verify or falsify if we use human known languages. Um, so it's already a little kind of, huh, when every example is the one you can't test. 
But the second thing is most, most of my friends who, um, and I do have dear friends who, who believe in the gift of languages, believe its primary purpose is as a per- personal prayer language. Anyone hear that before? This is, okay. So according to this view, the gift of languages is a gift whereby God gives you a supernatural prayer language for your own prayer life with him. Now here's my problem with that. No, and this paragraph would appear to give support for that. Let's face it, right? This paragraph taught says, um, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Except, this is where I said 12, go back to 12, 7. What's Paul say the purpose of the gifts is in 12, 7? For the common good. I, I don't think Paul's saying that, in other words, in a positive sense. I think his whole point in the contrast is to show Here's somebody trying to build up the body. Here's somebody building up themselves. Here's, like, you don't go, oh, so it's good to build. No, I don't think that's, I think the whole point of that contrast in the first paragraph is based on what he just said. Pursue the things for the common good. Stop trying to build yourself up, build up the body. Um, I, I don't think, in other words, he's establishing a principle of self-edifying gifts. Rather, he's contrasting the superiority. I mean, undeniably, the purpose of this paragraph is to show the superiority of a gift that builds up everybody, right? That's undeniably the purpose. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, but for no one understands him. So his, his first point is, if you're speaking in an unknown language, nobody around you is getting anything. You, you're speaking to God, all right, sure. <laughs> no one else is getting anything, um, for no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, pause. Mystery, okay? In English, that's a who, mysteries. Greek, no one knows what he's saying. That's the point. It's not, he's not sanctifying this like, I'm speaking mysteries in the Spirit. I'm speaking who knows what in the Spirit is, is just as easily another translation of it. it. We hear mystery and we think, ooh, you know. He's speaking what is not known would be another way of translating. He speaks what is not known. Um, not saying it's good or bad. It's just, I'm just trying to get the, 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 um, the weird, okay. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building of encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Do you get the point of the contrast? I don't think Paul's establishing and contradicting what he just said in chapter 12 and establishing a self-edifying gift. Now, certainly Paul conceives, considers the possibility that someone with this gift may in fact pray in this gift. That's not to say... That's not to say that that shouldn't be done or that can't be done, but that's not, and we'll get to this in a little bit, the main purpose of the gift of languages. So let's just keep reading. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know it is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongues you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Pause. I want to temper with that sentence what he said up in verse 1, 2. The one who speaks in a language speaks not to men but to God. And I don't want either to rule the other. On the one hand, you could picture someone really, really just taking verse 2 and saying, you know, I'm speaking not to men but to God. Whatever that is that's going on there, he calls it speaking to the air a few verses later. And, let, and I don't want to override the second one and just be like, you're just talking to the air. No, he does say they're talking to God, but let, let it balance itself out. Again, I'm just trying to, people will try to make this whole, I'm speaking in a prayer language to God, leave me be. Well, he also calls it speaking into the air. Whatever's going on here, it, let that balance itself out um, in temperament. Now, um, if you'll be speaking into the air, there are, now look at verse 10. This is huge. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I kind of think he just lived, gave us the scope of what we're talking about. I don't think he's including angelic languages. I think it is hyperbole in chapter 13. Otherwise, what is the purpose of giving that framing sentence? There are many types of languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner, and the speaker the speaker, and the speaker of foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So again, to recap, Paul wants 
the body edified. The gifts were given for the edification of the body. I think Paul just gave us the scope of what this gift encompasses. Known earthly languages. Let's keep going. Therefore, one who speaks in a language should pray for the power to interpret. Now notice there, that means the speaker doesn't even know what they are saying. Get that. We'll, we'll tie this all together. Well, I'm almost done. I've got to be done here in a second. We'll pick this up next week. But um, For if I pray, verse 14, for if I pray in a language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise in my spirit, and I'll sing praise in my mind also. Now, let's pause. And I'll ask you this. We'll pick this up next week. Let's grant for a moment the claim that the gift of languages is fundamentally a gift of a prayer language. Here's my question. You can chew on this. What does praying in a language I do not understand accomplish for me? What is the purpose? Paul just said, if you speak in or pray in an unknown language, you should pray for the ability to understand what you just said. So here's where we'll pick it up next week. But this is the question, and I'm trying to be as peaceable as possible, because like I said, I got friends and people I care about who believe this. I don't, where I'm disagreeing with them on what, what, it's, what fundamentally is the gift of languages and what is its purpose. And what I want to ask them is, okay, you think God gave you a gift whereby you can speak in a language you don't understand in prayer to God. Why? What does that do? To what end does that accomplish? You don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're saying. And God, I don't believe, is hung up on the words. You ever pray and say something wrong? I mean, you've heard me say the wrong words earlier today. Do you think God's, in other words, do you think God is fundamentally listening to the words or looking at the heart? So as far as I can tell, the only purpose of the words in my prayers are for me. And if I can't understand what I'm saying, my next question would be, what difference would it make whether I'm speaking a language I don't know, whether I'm speaking gibberish? Functionally, what would the difference be? In both instances, I don't know what I'm doing or saying. And in both instances, God's looking at my heart. So these are some, these are some, but I think you need to ask these very, very gently and kindly and ask someone to consider it. Help me understand what is the purpose of this? What does it do? Um, if, if the gift of languages is turned into first and foremost a prayer language, I will get to you all some will break. These are the questions I have. And it's easy to ridicule and it's easy to, and that's why I'm trying to be as peaceable as I can, but I think these are hard questions that my charismatic friends aren't going to have to, yes, Elsa. Yeah. Oh, Romans 8. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, we'll pick that up next week. So, so that's so I know we're moving through this, but we'll pick this up next week and we'll look at this some more, and we'll keep working through First Corinthians fourteen because in First Corinthians fourteen Paul says tongues are a sign. He tells us what they're for, and then we'll look at that and f- factor that in. Okay.